Here's to the crazy ones. The misfits. The rebels. The troublemakers. The round pegs in the square holes. The ones who see things differently. Oh, they're not fond of rules. And they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, disbelieve them, glorify or willify them. About the only thing that you can't do is ignore them. Because they change things. They invent, they imagine, they heal, they explore, they create, they inspire. They push the human race forward. Maybe they have to be crazy. Because the ones who are crazy enough to think that they can change the world are the ones who do. Hey, it's Nono, and this is the Getting Simple Podcast. Welcome to the Getting Simple Podcast. Before we get started, I'd like to remind you that you can find a detailed list of episode notes for this episode at gettingsimple.com forward slash Tanya. That's T-A-N-J-A. And that you can listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or whatever you get your podcasts, really. Today, I'm finally having the opportunity to talk to Tanya or Tatiana Yambasova. Yeah, finally. <laughs> <laughs> So we are here in Mill Valley in California and north side of the Golden Gate, San Francisco. I will briefly introduce Tatiana. So she moved from Macedonia to the U.S. a while ago. She's been, well, she was working for Autodesk for around 18 years, leading different products, right? Launches of different products as a product manager and more recently, she's been working with a startup that was working on uh, metal additive processes. Mm -hmm. And now she's working as a director of product management at Bright Machines, a company that tries to do software-driven... Software-driven manufacturing. So you studied architecture, right? That was yes. a while ago in Macedonia. And more recently, and that's something that maybe we can talk about now or later, she's even learning how to program. The first thing I would like to know is what brings you to read to us today this, this quote that you used to introduce the, the episode. So it's interesting. This quote is known to the whole world. It was the ad campaign for Think Different by Apple. It was recently resent to me by a friend. She's an old hippie. She attributed it to Jack Kerouac, as many people did. But why I started with this quote is because I think it reflects, it pretty much sums up the guiding principles of my life. Uh, because what I like about the misfits and the crazy ones are two things. They always question the status quo, and they're the ones who offer always first solutions, different solutions to existing problems. And I think many problems in the world can be solved if we just ask the right questions. And one of the things that, you know, came to mind or, you know, it strikes me from your personality or your identity, right, who you are, is how many contacts you have or how easily it comes to you to even suggest people for me to interview, right? Like I think I recently was reading The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. So I would perfectly classify you in what he <laughs> talks about like a, a connector. 
the prototypical connector? There are two sides of that. One is I have chosen a life in which I want to learn a little about many things. Although in reality, I respect the opposite. I respect people who have dedicated their entire lives to the one thing perfectly. But my interests are so broad that um, I think my brain is a complete soup. I continuously read and learn about new things. And that is the path also I've chosen in my career. Some of the leadership of Autodesk very early recognized that I'm really very good in a non-comfort zone in new topics. So I ended up leading new initiatives every two years, which meant I was entering yet another industry, yet another problem every two years. And due to the nature of my job, I've been meeting so many people that on one hand, the pool of people that I've met in my life and their diversity is amazing. And then on the other hand, there is this Balkan matchmaking side of me that I like to connect people, be it privately and um, romantically, but more importantly, there is nothing more beautiful when you see a couple of people thinking about the same problem from different way. And you say, do you know about this guy? Or do you know about this girl? I'll connect them and then some magic happens. And there is nothing more beautiful than that. That's creation, pure creation. And you also, in our previous conversation, you mentioned that some people are messengers. Can you elaborate a bit more on that? Yes. So there is one thing about people who are the inventors, people who have the first ideas. Obviously, without that, nothing can move. But then just as important are people who have the capacity to spread those ideas, to make them happen, to, to make them understood. And I think one of the things that people have recognized my skill is into translating ideas in a way that anybody can understand. And it doesn't matter if it is about a language, how I would teach somebody a language, or if it is about technology. I continuously have been hearing, why is it that when you explain it, I understand it? People love to learn. There is nothing more beautiful when you give a talk, when you give a lecture, and you see somebody's faces light up. That is because you opened a new door in their mind. You opened a new opportunity in their mind, and you taught them they want to know more. I think that there is a role for, for those of us who have the capacity to teach and to make difficult problems or problems that are not yet understood, understandable and intrigable and lovable. What have been the most rewarding talks that you've given? In this wow. sense, right? In the sense of like people coming to you maybe and talking or like trying yes. to say like, oh, we really got that when you said it. Yeah, you know, I, it's, it's such a panorama of uh, how many talks in the world I have given in how many languages and cultures and how many different topics. A couple of them stick out, mainly more with kids. I was invited to speak in the um, Computer History Museum in California and there were about, I think about 150 girls, they were about age 12, 13, they were learning how to code and I was supposed to be one of the rock stars of Silicon Valley, which obviously I'm not, but I was happy to be called that. And um, I was telling them about my life path, you know, how I wanted to be a ballerina and I never planned to become what I became. But then I guided them through my career and through some of the projects that I've been working on. And when I finished, there were these girls that like a swarm of bees just went around me and everybody, how did you do this? How did you do this? And one girl was super shy and she came and she said, you inspired me so much. I want to be you when I grow up. And this, the interesting thing is that that happens even with adults. They come and they say, I want to be you when I grow up. Obviously joking, but another episode was in Louvre 
I was demonstrating the ever first HP tablet. It was not yet working. It was clunky. But we had a software called Architectural Studio that was about sketching architecture and combined with photos and 3D and stuff. After a talk I gave and the demonstration, there was this guy who is, he was some venture capitalist or investor. And he came to me and he said, I don't have a creative bone in my body, but I want to buy whatever you're selling here, which was really fun. And the last one is, yeah, my TEDx talk was, uh, was really interesting because actually the entire audio and video system crashed in the middle of the talk, which nobody can see now after they patched it. But people were all so happy afterwards and said, oh, you're a rock star. It was not a problem. And you inspired us so much. And then one week later, I was in the same location giving a talk to about 410 year old kids. That I think was the biggest success in life because try to keep 10 year old kids for about an hour and something quiet. The entire hall was quiet. And when I finished, I was talking about the maker movement and showing them creative tools about making things and producing things with your hands and stuff. When I finished, it was still quiet. And then they all stood up and started clapping. I think after that, it's like, you see Napoli and you die. I didn't have to make any more talks. That was the success. <laughs> and what road did you, from where did you come? What's your background? Where were you before coming to the US? Yeah. Given the fact that I have a very strong accent, nobody can figure it out. So I get that question a lot. Where do you come from? And I always say complicated because you don't know if people are asking you because of your accent or just because they know somebody is always from somewhere else. I was born in Yugoslavia. It was the most beautiful place in the universe and I miss it daily. That place of Yugoslavia is now called Macedonia or recently renamed in Northern Macedonia. I moved to Vienna after studying architecture. I was recommended during an international design seminar at which many famous architects, uh, Hermann Herzberger and Anton Schweighofer and Mario Botta and many others were there. And uh, one of them invited me to work for him. So I moved to Vienna. I stayed there for 12 years. And after that, I moved to London. I moved to Paris, Boston, and now I'm in San Francisco a little bit all around the place and throughout my career also all around the globe in terms of globe trotting and teaching and educating technology. Yeah. And what would you say is your, or has been all, all these years, your main motivation or your, your mission, your creative endeavor? Uh, I don't know. You know, I, I have so many interests in life that I wake up daily and I think I'm such a failure. I never did what I really wanted. And it's untrue because I wanted everything I was doing, but the, the number of interests are just so big that you, you simply cannot, you cannot fulfill them in one life. Life is too short, right? But my entire life was a journey of learning. I don't think I arrived anywhere. It is a continuous journey. I learn like a crazy lunatic, 10 different topics a day. But have I really learned anything? I'm just always hoping that there is something left in the brain that connects the dots differently after I learned something. But... I'm, I'm just curious about how everything works together. And, you know, I don't think I have a defined mission. The mission that I discovered through work was really that I teach well what I know and topics that are of importance and topics that are dear to my heart about taking care of people and taking care of our environment. So you mentioned to me before also the quote, working on solving the right problems. Yeah, so this is a very interesting topic and you will hear me being very passionate about that. 
As a product manager, the role is to understand what problems are you trying to solve when you're finding or offering technological solution. And living in Silicon Valley, sometimes it's really, um, it makes you question things. So six months ago, I saw on Twitter an application that obviously super smart machine learning guys have been working on. And the application was doing what? It was taking a picture of somebody and then showing you how that person looks naked. And this for me was absurd. Solution looking for a problem. Don't we have enough real problems in life? What a waste of talent when you think about it. But that's only just by picking what kind of problem. And I think between pollution, global warming, climate change, processing plastics, extinguishing fires, medications, human rights, there's so many real problems to solve that I was just disappointed that somebody decided to spend their time on that. But when I talk about solving the problems the right way, my manager, Abhishek Pani, by the way, unbelievably smart guy, and that is somebody you definitely should interview. He pointed to me a story that I've never heard of before. And if you know it, sorry for patronizing, but if not, it's very interesting. It's called the bullet hole misconception. It's about how we use data. The story of the bullet hole misconception is basically, it's about the World War II bombers. And uh, the fact that if you were, the bombers were flying long missions and penetrating deep into a territory. And, you know, deadly uh, flag were touring through the bombers. Not many of the planes were coming back. The fatality was from 100 soldiers, 40 were dead. It was just a huge price to pay for what it was doing. So the Allied command insisted that bombing was uh, critical to the success of war. So they really wanted to solve the problem, how to cut the number of casualties. What they decided to do is, as the planes were coming back from their missions, they started counting up the bullet holes on the various parts of the planes. And usually that showed concentration of bullet holes on three parts of the plane, on the fuselage, the wings, and the tail. So they said, great, we, we have a solution. The bombers should be more heavily armed exactly in those areas to reduce the damage made by the flak and uh, the enemy fighter planes. And by that, um, you know, they thought they have a solution. So obviously you cannot arm the entire plane because it will be too heavy to fly. So they arm it there where most of the bullet holes were, right? So this was an obvious solution, but as Daniel Siegel, from whom I read the article, said, it's obvious, but it's wrong. Because actually, a guy called Abraham Wald reviewed the data and pointed out a critical flaw in, in the analysis, which was the command had only looked at planes that had come back. So obviously, of all the bullets that have been penetrating the planes of the planes that came back were still not deadly enough. Everything that was deadly and that they should have armored against were on the planes that never came back. So for me, this story is about what questions are we not asking? This obviously had enough data, but they looked at the data the wrong way. And I'm very worried in the time of big data today that we look at data, but we are not asking the right questions and blindly just following the data. So this is something that I will always keep in mind since I found out about this story. And there was also another story, which is funny, also from the World War II, and I'm not big on any wars or learnings from wars, but it's another story about strategy and solving the problems the right way. And it was about the, the tank production during the, uh, the World War II. There was a talk of, uh, by Jonathan Parshall at the conference for World War II, and it was about the production strategy of tanks. And if you look at tanks, tanks productions require 
money, labor, energy, and steel. So then he analyzes Germany and Russia and America, who had how much of what, and who had the best chances to make most of the tanks and win the war. But it was not about that. It was about the manufacturing strategy. The Germans, as they are, they decided to do a very high quality product. They made 12 models, a preference for flexibility in manufacturing if they need to change something. And they required, the process they developed required a skilled craftsman to work on it. The Russians, on the other hand, they've done the math. They realized that um, the average lifespan of a tank was uh, less than six months. And once deployed on the battlefield, it was actually less than 14 hours. So once you have that in, in your mind, the fact that the devices, the machines are disposable, as well as sadly the human beings inside of them, that led them to the right solution, which was basically only three types of tanks, no subcomponent, no engine, nothing should last longer than the lifespan, the predicted lifespan of the tractor. And they crammed the factories very close to each other, everything, very few spaces, and they didn't require skilled labor. And the rest is history. So the point is, what I learned from that lesson was not only that you really have to, again, understand what problem are you solving to find the right solution, because sometimes good enough solution is good enough. And even though we know that, sometimes we all shoot for the stars. We all want to make a perfect solution. And continue a bit along these lines, what would you define that something is uh, real innovation? Real innovation? Wow. Hmm. Again, for me, it is about looking at a problem in a different way and finding a solution that was not obvious. You've previously mentioned that you always were working on new projects. What were some of the biggest challenges of that? Yeah, so in my 18 years in Autodesk and also the last three years, I somehow ended up always on the forefront of making some new or disruptive projects that were often very uncomfortable to people because they were asking for a change. And we as humans in general don't like change, but especially in the professional world, once you have a safe solution, once you know a tool, once you have a technique, it's very difficult to persuade somebody that there is a better new way. But there were other challenges as well. It was internal negativism in the company or skepticism. Why are we now working on that when we have AutoCAD, when we have Revit, etc.? So I think shepherding through negativity and skepticism is a master skill that you have to have if you want to be on the forefront. And I never call myself an innovator because to be very frank with you, almost every idea I've worked on has come from other people. Brian Matthews, one of my biggest inspirations, Amara Hanspal, Carl Bass, obviously, all these people had the initial idea, but then they needed somebody to make it happen. And then they would pick me. And I was very grateful because I'm really not comfortable in comfort zone. I like solving new challenges. And I think the most important thing is either if you're the innovator or somebody who is on the very front to make some new ideas happen, remember that it is never a failure to try something new, to innovate on a new solution by thinking out of the box. For me, it's a failure not to try. Innovation is not safe. People who change the world don't rely on talent. They rely on work. You know, many people can have a good idea, but make it happen. And by the way, that is exactly what I told the girls as uh, my only advice. I said, don't ever let the disbelievers steer you away from a good idea. 
just run with it. Just believe in yourself and go for it. What have been some of the most rewarding ideas you've pursued now that you can talk on retrospect? Oh my God, I've been very fortunate to work on some really interesting things. For example, at the beginning of the maker movement, Autodesk was at that time really just focused on design. And this was the first time that we were starting to think or talk about actual, how do you make the designs? And from talking about amateurs and kids and how everybody now enabled by technology can express their creativity, we turned that into a curiosity and the strategy changed to actually think during design of how things are manufactured. And that turned out to be a whole new era for Autodesk, supported by many acquisitions to talk about digital fabrication and making of things and the world of 3D printing, etc. So that was really a, a beautiful path and I was very happy to be part of it. The other one today proves even more important than what I thought it was when we were working on it. It's the whole topic of computer vision. We started with photogrammetry, how can you make 3D models by taking photos? And that period of working on Memento with my amazing team from Singapore and people from the San Francisco office and Pittsburgh, it was amazing. We were working on photogrammetry and laser scanning, basically the idea that you can digitize the world and then you can make a new physical replica out of it or a new digital world out of it. And that was the most diverse tool that we have ever created because we had both architects, civil engineers, capturing buildings as if conditions or capturing landfills. But on the other hand, the very same tool was used by Dr. Louise Leakey in Kenya to digitize all the skulls of the first humans and animals that were ever discovered, or by Sly Lee and the Hydras to digitize corals underwater, or by the Smithsonian to digitize the Smithsonian collections. It was beautiful. It was such a beautiful journey. And now that we, we were recently reminiscing with Amar Hanspel that we were right about believing in computer vision, and this was 10 years ago. Now, without computer vision, you don't have self-driving cars, you don't have any automation, any machine learning. It is fascinating. So it's really fun to be on the, at the beginning and remembering that many colleagues would tell you, why are we doing this? This is so stupid. And then a couple of years later, they say, you have the coolest job. And this was so cool. <laughs> you know, you just have to persist, believe and persist. So... Another aspect of innovation I've been thinking about this a lot lately and discussing with friends. When I look at many companies that have started with fantastic idea that sadly then turned out to have a lot of negative repercussions on our lives, I thought that it's almost irresponsible to innovate and to propose solutions without thinking it fully through. And what I mean by that is if you're an innovator, if you do something new, you have responsibility and duty to believe in your success. Once you believe in your success, you can then say, okay, I will be successful. It's a year, that and that. How does the world look like with my solution already adopted, fully implemented in the world? If startups would have done that analysis, a lot of the problems that we are now trying to damage control wouldn't have happened. If Facebook, Twitter, great companies, what they managed to do for many people is fascinating, but we also know how much that is now misused as well. If they only could have imagined the world with their solution, or if the electric scooters that are now a real problem in big cities would have imagined, how does it look like when my solution is successful, when it's implemented, when it's there? I think this is missing. And if I were somebody 
who is an investor or advisor to startups, I would never start a company without understanding, without believing that I succeeded and imagining the world with it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think there are many times in life where we repeatedly see how technologies just get created for the sake of seeing if we can do them, but then we we end up having that technology as implemented in our daily lives by just download this new app in your phone. And then there is a, I mean, there are a lot of social and cultural repercussions that we now then have to damage control yeah. instead of doing more the Amish way, right? Like thinking before and actually giving it some thought and agreeing as a, maybe as a community, as a city or as a country and, and, and taking those decisions beforehand. Yeah. For me, this also points one other thing that I've seen in my career. People sometimes confuse technology and product. There is technology and there are products. Products are useful for people and they solve real problems. Technology can exist on its own, but you cannot make technology for the sake of technology. We have too many important problems in our lives to just do LARP or LARPism with technology. How would you imagine when you're developing a product, how would you take that leap and say, okay, let's imagine how the world looks like with my innovation or our innovation? Well, you know, it really depends on what topic are you doing. But if you looked at the electric scooters and understanding that people would just leave them everywhere in the street, you would probably try to design a system around the fact that you have to return it somewhere else. And this is just a simplified solution. I'm just saying you always have to take into account that. Now we're working on factory automation. Many people will tell you people will lose jobs. Even though in majority of the cases, this has proven that it is a debatable question because the world has actually a problem finding labor. New generations of kids are totally not imagining working in factories. But yet again, there will be places in the world that people will be probably losing their jobs to robots or machines. And you have to work on the technology in a way that you can predict that and you can provide a solution that is not done after the fact that you created the problem, but is designed in your solution, be it you're creating the products. For example, I work on a software for how to teach a robot easily. If I make that software so easy that I can widen the net over who can use it, maybe those very same people who today are doing a job that no human should be doing, assembling the same thing 20 hours a day, maybe they will be just much happier and totally capable to just operate the machine that would do that. Yeah, now that you're touching on happiness, I think, and it's really evident here in the Bay Area, we seem to be overly busy, but it seems like all the innovations, and you mentioned this before, right? Like all, everything that we try to improve, it's a bit of a myth for a better life. Yes. Can you elaborate a bit <laughs> on that? Well, I recently read a book called The Sapiens, and I strongly recommend you read it. It's from Yuval Harari. It is a fascinating journey of the human species from our beginnings until today and the technologies that we have been developing and how they helped us or hurt us. And one thing that you understand from that book is that we were the smartest, the happiest and the healthiest when we were hunter-gatherers. And, you know, it's very controversial to say this, but actually all the facts prove that it is the case. So a hunter-gatherer would wake up and would go around, walk to find food. Given that food was not just delivered on a plate, they would walk for hours and then their diet would be very diverse because 
Today they will find berries, tomorrow something else, tomorrow they'll kill something. So first they had to move in order to find something that was healthy. Secondly, the diet was very diverse. So the food looking would take them about three, four hours of, of the day. In order to do that right and not get killed by an animal, they had to have a very good sense of geography, of understanding the wind and the sun and the seasons, etc. And finally, after three, four hours a day of doing that, they had the day free to enjoy, to tell stories to the others, etc. And then came the agricultural, the myth of the agricultural revolution and that we can now produce wheat on one place, a lot of wheat, a lot of food. But that was the first thing that made humans a slave to meat because now they had to stay on one place because you had to take care of the field. Babies didn't drink mother's milk anymore because the mothers needed to work in the field. The whole diet turned into anything wheat, which was not very good for, for them. And from then on, there is a whole history of how then um, the bad people saw opportunity to use the naive people and it's all downhill. So basically, it's really fascinating that we have been developing, developing technology to make our lives better and easier. And yet we have never been busier. We have never been more stressed and we have never had less time to actually do the things that interest us in life aside from work. And that is kind of sad. Yeah, so before that would come somehow naturally to us because that, you know, hunter-gatherers, well, to us or to, to them. Yeah. Because that's what the only thing that they knew how to do or as a culture, they, they that's what they did. But today, that's not the norm, right? We need to sort of fight against it and establish our own routines, our own habits, our own ways of living. Can you mention any little things maybe in your routine or little acts that throughout your days you try to do to, to fight that stress or that speed? Yeah, so the first time you asked me to do the interview and your podcast is called Do Less, I was like, I'm the wrongest person for this interview because I have not found a way to do less. I have not found a way to... I'm intellectually aware of the trap, but I have not found a way to do this better. And it is fascinating. I do, I do take time for things that I like. I study my languages. I read a lot. My boyfriend and I always just try to solve new problems, learn structures or physics or something together. But I'm just adding to my stuff. I'm not disconnecting in those terms. It is, you know, I was recently in Europe and I realized somehow Europeans still manage to work for a living. And in America, we live for working. And I feel like I'm postponing life because I would like to do so many other things. And I always say, later, later, after this, after this is over, after this project is over. And there is never a later. If you don't do it now, you might never do it. So I have the discipline of asking myself every day this question, but I don't have the answer. <laughs> you mentioned Europe and America. Maybe that's a conception from here, but I think there might be companies there that act the same way and maybe companies here in the US that act a different way. Maybe that's more project-based or team-based or, I don't know, company-based sometimes. So it's, a, it's like a, the culture of working in, in a company, right? But it's also the, the systems, the societies. You know, if you're worried that you have a good job today, but after two months, if you don't have a job, you don't have medical insurance here, well, that's a little bit the different stress than knowing 
when you live in Europe that, hey, you've worked all your life, you have paid your dues, but you're taken care of when you're sick, old, pregnant, or hurt. And that's a fundamental society issue. Yep, that's definitely an issue. I also wanted for you to talk, right? You've worked on big companies and startups. And how was that different? Was it different? You know, actually, it's not. There are some assumptions of how things work in big companies and in smaller companies. It's all about the people. You can have a small startup be more bureaucratic and procedural process-based than a big company. It's really all about the people. In my life, I've always tried to, I was just interested to make great things with really smart people. Working for people who are smarter than me or with people smarter than me was always very inspiring. But we are weak, we're feeble as people, and there is a lot of things that can make even the best people come into unnecessary conflicts. And so it's a, it's a lot about the people and sometimes a little bit about how the leadership drives an organization. There are people who like to create conflict in their organizations because they think that that brings new values. I don't believe in that. I don't believe in leading with fear nor leading with chaos. So yeah, remember you're a human. Remember that we are, as Sam Harris would say, we're all on this Titanic together. Time is short. There is enough place on this earth for everybody. There, is, there are enough jobs. There is enough air to breathe. And we should just be more empathetic about people and more open to other people's thoughts, ideas, and lives. Yeah, I think more compassion brings you more happiness. Empathy, yeah. In working on different companies, how do you think working from home, if you have, or the serendipity of meeting someone on the coffee machine or something, yeah. how, how does that contribute to your creativity? Yeah, so I've been very lucky that wherever I worked, I was led to stay at home and work from home for a day and a week, a couple of days a week, depending on the period, depending on what I work on. And sometimes when I write, uh, when I need to be focused, working from home is really working well, especially when you live among the redwoods as I do. It's very inspiring. But there is nothing like being in the office And you sit at your desk and, you know, products are not done in conference rooms or in meetings. The best ideas are the ideas that you hear two colleagues just chatting about something and you turn and say, wait, did you say that? Because if that is possible, oh my God, we can do this and this and then solve that problem much easier than what we thought. And that is fascinatingly working. That serendipity of not planned meeting, this is the goal of the meeting, this is the agenda, we'll be talking about that. that. That's okay, that has its place, but that's not how ideas are born. And you need really people from different types, from different profiles, from different skill sets, different industries to really come with right solutions. And that is lacking. You know, I was always joking when you go to an architectural conference, everybody's an architect. That's not interesting, <laughs> you know. We did a conference a couple of years ago called The Real, and it was all about reality capture, computer vision. And who was it for? For anybody who saw an opportunity to use that technology to, to push their profession to their limits. So we had architects meeting doctors, meeting space engineers, meeting museum curators. That was fascinating because the one would see how the other solved the problem and say, wait, this is actually the same way I can do that for me. And I think bringing people from different back backgrounds, and that often happens in an office, even if we are all working on, a, on the same product or something, you have people from marketing, from legal, from 
and they have good ideas they have good thoughts who have been some i mean if you have any stories or experiences what has been a connection right of two people maybe from really different backgrounds that you've made that led to something if you can remember well on that conference there were a lot of them that happened and i will have to think about the concrete examples but it was um hmm we've been connecting so many people that i don't have an answer now on the last couple of days you've mentioned that you missed being creative and that's led you to learning programming at least that's one action that you've taken can you share with us why uh, yeah so need to be creative in two ways one is i need to use my hands i'm incredibly jealous of your notebook and your wonderful drawings because that is what i wanted to do all my life and i mentioned postponing life and thinking i'm now buying everyday notebooks and aquarel paints and stuff but they don't have time to be used so that's very sad on the other hand I decided at age of 54 to start a full um, stack programming web programming school. I'm doing that with Coding Dojo, which is one of the more respected schools. It's very difficult because the school has a philosophy that they're not going to powerpoint you to death or do something so you check boxes. They actually throw you in the fire alone and say go and figure it out and only after a certain amount of time if you cannot figure out something on the algorithms etc then they have beautiful material that shows you how to do it. The reason why I wanted to do that aside from the obvious fact that I work in technology and whatever I do I work with programmers it helps me understand them but it was more that I'm a little bit um uh, horrified in the last two years uh, that uh, the world started to make science be a question of opinion and not of a fact especially through social networks people are now so passionate and so adamant about certain things that they simply don't understand and uh, i think my motivation to learn programming was to maybe try to find a way through graphical storytelling and data visualization to if i'm good with programming to try to explain some of those concepts try to explain how climate change works what about embedded carbon why is uh, biodiversity important how are ecosystems failing us there is somebody who i completely admire we met and um this is an adorable guy his name is Jonathan Harris 24 you two should make a project together he is a storyteller who is using data from the web started using data from the web to visualize it in a way that is mind blowing and he was probably my first inspiration to do that only yesterday i read an article about pictures of species that are still alive but are on the brink of extinction and it was basically the idea was that the pictures were composed of as many pixels as there were animals still alive from those species and it was a campaign created by um an agency in Tokyo um Hakuhodo it was actually somebody who did it they said there's a programming challenge to do it but it's fascinating how easy it is to convey the message you have a picture that the pixels are only 100 pixels you cannot recognize the animal anymore it's not there it's vanishing it's gone and there there is a power people don't understand abstract concepts if i tell you 1 trillion 10 trillions does it make a difference if we've no idea what that means people don't have time to read enough to and to validate sources of what they're reading so we live in a very dangerous era where we need to find a way to learn from the data properly and to maybe use new technologies to make it available to others 
Well, that's impressive that you're trying to do that now, like to actually get into data visualization, programming and understanding. Yes, I really hope that that is what I will learn. Yeah, people like Aaron Koblin, you know, there, there's so many people who have leveraged this medium to really make things interesting or more understood. I hope that I will do that. <laughs> yeah, and you shared, the other day you shared with me the quote of Steve Jobs, everybody needs to learn how to program because it teaches you how to think. Absolutely. That was actually probably my first inspiration to do it because I was intrigued. What does he mean? And now that I've gone through HTML, CSS, JavaScript, Python, SQL, Flask, Django, <laughs> Jinja, just kill me how many <laughs> platforms and languages there are. I really see what he meant. Because in programming, the first thing that I learned, and especially through the way how Coding Dojo is doing this, you need to make sure you understood the problem well. Don't skip over. Don't, you know, don't rush through it and read quickly and then immediately think of the solution. This is half of the problem. If you understand the problem well, if you really took time to understand it, the solution will start, start emerging. And then the second step that I learned through programming is that every problem can be subdivided into smaller chunks that are much more manageable to overview, to solve, and to, to test for their validity. Alone, those two things have really changed my, uh, my everyday life thinking of solving problems. Yeah, everything can look overwhelming, right? If you try to approach it all at once. Absolutely. I mean, I'm also surprised of how many little things of code are already made online for us to use, right? Uh, we're so spoiled. There's so many things that, uh, you know, you, you had an interview with Ben and Processing. Ben Fry. Ben Fry. That was so beautiful what they did because, you know, at the time I did not know anything about programming, not that I know much more now, but... It was so beautiful to just go through the uh, examples and just by taking this code snippet and changing it, you already learn. And that is beautiful. Learn through examples and then start augmenting them one after the other. Yeah, that's, I mean, for me, that's fascinating. Who are other people who inspire you? Well, the list is probably long and very diverse. Alex Degan, who runs Conservation X Labs. I would work for Alex any day, anytime. His personal history and his latest book, you really just have to read it, The Snow Leopard Story. He created Conservation X Labs with the idea to use technology to solve real environmental or conservation problems. And he's connecting people, companies, and making a lot of competitions with ideas how to solve invasive species or this and that. Fascinating. And he's just an unbelievable gem of a person. Saul Griffith. A genius, the most humble person that I've met and yet the smartest in the world. He runs other labs and that place is just bursting of ideas and experiments and prototypes of anything that will make this world better, be it from renewable energy solutions. He and his friend Corwin were creating energy with kite flying that is now a Google technology, uh, solar and then soft robots so that we don't send humans into combat, but we send robots that are disposable and cheaper than the expensive robots that people were sent in front of. And one person that I highly respect is Emmanuel de Merod. He is the ward of the Virunga National Park in Congo. That is an unbelievably special human being. He is trying to recreate society in a region raped by war and paramilitary groups for the last 25, 30 years. This is the region where after the Rwanda genocide, 
a lot of people have have migrated from Rwanda and uh, the war basically continues now on the Congo side. He's trying to build a solution to bring stability, to create jobs, to create meaningful life for these people, to preserve the nature, to stop the cutting of the forests. These are the forests where the last mountain gorillas are living, to educate by mere understanding of the solution and proposing the right problems and navigating through complicated corruptions in governments, etc. So he's basically building hydroelectrons to create energy because he realized that energy is the best return of investment on poverty and take it from there. And uh, his work is just fascinating. And if you have not seen the movie Virunga that was nominated for Oscar a couple of years ago, he's featured there, his, his team is featured there. Eric and I went twice to Congo and you feel so humble when you see people who dedicate their entire lives to a really worthy cause. And then other people are Sam Harris. If it wasn't for Sam Harris, I wouldn't be a sane person anymore, especially not in the last two years. I don't meditate, but my meditation is to listen to Sam Harris because he's a fascinating philosopher and a neuroscientist. Maria Popova, unbelievably prolific person. She runs the blog, The Brain Pickings, and connects literature and art in a way that nobody does. Sam Harris said she's the best reader he has ever met. And she makes art of, out of reading. It's beautiful. Iris van Herpen, she's a friend. She's uh, probably the number one fashion designer in the world. And her things is, I always say, this is the Leonardo da Vinci of the 21st century in, in the world of fashion because she uses technology to make something that is new, creative, sensual, and not using technology for the sake of technology. None of these people do. There are many others, Adam Lowe from Factum Arte. But uh, what ties over these people is that they do something new, they question, they do it differently, and they're unbelievably hardworking and prolific. And that is an inspiration. Thanks so much. Yeah, you got a lot of people. I'm, I'm sure that if we had more time, we will go over a longer list. Yes, <laughs> but I'm not as important as they are, so it's much better you interview them. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. <laughs> So I wanted to know, we've talked a lot about technology and before we talked about being busy and things like this, how do you disconnect? Do you manage to get away from the screen, do things with your hands, as you said before, analog things? How do I disconnect? Do I ever? It's the question. It seems from the patterns of what I do when I try to disconnect, disconnecting for me is about connecting with people and with nature. I um, enjoy nature and animals. We decided to move into our tree house in the woods here because there is something calming and something that you call home when the colors are green and blue. I have been for 13, 14 years every year going to Africa to spend the month with big cats and rhinos and elephants, etc. because my heart bleeds about what's happening and uh, they live now in reserves. They should never do that, but that is the only safe havens for them. So I'm volunteering from medication and feeding them to just spending time with them and hope they have just as much fun as I do. That for me is having my nose stuck in a lion fur is calming me down like no other way in the world. Otherwise, on the practical side, we kayak, we paddle, we hike. The advantage of living here is that we have a two-hour hike to the ocean or just we hike up the mountain and there is a lot of philosophical conversations happening. I do a lot of reading. 
I love cooking. Making stuff with my hands, I do. I was sewing and knitting a lot with my mom. My mom was a genius. She knew how to do everything. I learned absolutely everything from her. All my clothes when I was a kid, we, we were doing them, etc. So I don't have enough time for that. I do make a sweater or two a year for my friends or for my boyfriend, but I wish I can have more time to draw, to write. And yeah, but um, yeah, it's, uh, it's one life and you just don't know where to spend it on. Yeah, thanks for sharing. I heard as well that you are a vegetarian. Yeah, that's a small big topic. So I've been enormously connected with animals all my life. My family, we lived on the fifth floor in a socialist building. And we had, at some point, 12 cats, a dog, some hedgehogs, some rabbits, fish, birds. We even had for a month uh, a baby lion from the local zoo. When people were coming to our home, they were like, oh, we came to the zoo Jambazovi. It was crazy. But we are all very connected with animals. My love for animals has made it very difficult for me to eat animals. But Yugoslavia at the time, we didn't have anything that was non-seasonal fruits or veggies. So you, you ate whatever the season was. And while there is not much meat in the food, there is still meat in the food. So when I was 11 years old, I announced to my mom that I would become vegetarian. She was really worried because I was 36 kilos. I was really very skinny looked very un undernourished, so she did not go through that very well. <laughs> so I didn't manage to do it. And then seven years ago, when I met my boyfriend, I realized that he really understood food. He understood where fibers come from, proteins, etc. And I realized it would be easy to do it without hurting my body. So I switched from one day to another. And it was fascinating how much I found peace, both mentally in terms of I didn't have any more conflict, and also... Um, my energy came back. I was so full of energy. I said, oh my God, I was so tired in the evenings otherwise, and now not anymore. So people like me who have decided to um, stop eating meat because of the unbelievably cruel industrial husbandry and industrial way of producing uh, meat, you know, are usually considered, oh, some hippies or some activists, etc. I said, I did that for my own peace. I... Um, It is a sacrifice when you smell a meat on a grill, of course, uh, you want to. But the way I've managed to completely ignore it is by basically imagining the animal looking at me with wide eyes and long whimpers, all smiling. And I'm like, no, I don't need to eat you. The problem that we have today, though, is much bigger than just understanding that animal cruelty is absolutely horrifying in the farms. And anybody, anybody who would disagree that that is happening, please arrange that I visit any farm that you want. It will not be possible. The farms have triple fences like prisons. And it's very, there is a reason why. It's because due to the push of cheap, 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 cheap food and feeding the ever-growing population, the methods in which industrial farming is happening is just horribly brutal. So the problem what we have now is um, the impact of producing meat on the planet. This is something that I've been very passionate about and having really hard time to explain to friends who simply do not seem to get it. And it's about the companies who like Impossible Foods or Beyond Meat, who are trying to solve the problem of creating plant-based meats. And here is solving a problem the right way. What they're saying, especially the CEO of Impossible Foods is very vocal about this, 
we understand that we humans are, are weak. We love eating food. We like, love eating meat. Meat has always been the place or on the table, at the grill, the community, etc. So what they're saying is, we're not here to tell you not to eat meat or to make all of you vegetarian. We're here to understand why do you like meat and give you an alternative that is healthier and that is better for the planet. And additionally, that is not cruel to animals, right? So if you ask any meat eater, why do they eat meat? They don't eat meat because it comes from an animal carcass. They eat it in spite of that. They don't like the fact that, they, that there is an animal that was killed. Actually, whenever I say I'm vegetarian, people immediately say, oh, I eat very little meat. And it's always like an excuse. And often it's not even true, but it doesn't matter. The point is we feel guilty that, that we do that. But these companies exactly do not want to tackle the guilt aspect. They want to understand why is it that you eat meat? You eat it either because it's delicious, right? Or because you believe that those are the best proteins in the world for your body. So that is what they have done. All the ingredients are plant-based. There is not a single ingredient in their solutions. You can read them on the website that uh, you don't consume today through other foods, plants, or meat. And they've managed to do products that you cannot believe that you're not eating meat. They're just as tasty. They're, they have the absolute right level of protein that you would have gotten. And they are not bad for the environment. Because what's happening today? If you account for all the buildings, roads, and paved surfaces in the world, they occupy about uh, 1% of the Earth's land surface. And when it comes to land grazing and crops, it's 45%. So basically, we are cutting forests. We are ruining ecosystems. Why? To, to build fields, to um, do crop on them so that we can feed animals, so that we can then kill the animals to eat food. And the whole idea is that the animals are a very inefficient way of translating the plant biomass into a protein. There is a, a, a much easier way. And with one-tenth of the land that we use today, we could just immediately do these plant-based products and feed the whole population. And there are so many myths about this. There are so many fake, uh, obviously, industry-supported things, people who work in the industry who don't want it to go away. You will hear people say, oh, but it's processed. What does processed even mean? Every single product we eat is processed. Only if you don't pick it from the tree, it might not be processed. And when you pick it from the tree, it might be genetically modified. Because we as humans have been genetically modifying absolutely every animal and um, plant since we exist. Carrots, I read recently, have been only orange for the last 70 years or something like that. So using words in, instead of trying to understand the topic that it is really devastating the effects of, especially beef production, which is both what both of these uh, companies are trying to do. So I, I think that we're we're all adults and we make all decisions in life of um, what we care about and what we want to impact. But in this particular case, it's not about saying, oh, well, I will stop eating meat for a few people. Or some people have told me, why don't you just eat veggies and stuff. I can live without the meatless meat, with the plant without the plant-based meat. But it's about all the people, which is 95% of the population, that still is too weak not to eat meat. If we provide solution for them, I don't think that anybody would say, no, I want the meat that comes from the carcass, when they know that they can help change the world. Because some problems today cannot be solved locally and cannot be solved, solved just by a group of people. We can only solve them globally and together. Yeah, I think these types of 
plant-based meats are here to stay with us. I think they're a pretty good alternative to eating meat. I well, I tried them yesterday with you. I think they're they're pretty good. And even the sausages, right? Like burgers and sausages. And yeah. So yesterday you tried Beyond Burger and Beyond Sausage, and this was at home. I just quickly did it on my frying pan. If you try it in any of the companies that is selling Beyond Burger or Burger King, etc., when they have a real grill, it's really tasty. And I think what's more important is that many times we eat meat or sausages or things like this are cultural, right? Like maybe like the prototypical American barbecue for a birthday or something like that. So I think like allowing for something to to have the same sort of meaning or cultural, you know, meeting, but being an alternative to actual meat. It, it's Yeah. No, it, it, there is so much facts. I'm not going to, I can give you a couple of pointers that you can post, but the fact that one burger consumes 300 liters of water doesn't even cross people's minds. And it doesn't just consume the water. By consuming the water, it also pollutes the water. But this this global demand for meat and fish, by the way, and dairy foods, is basically the, the primary driver of a complete meltdown in the diversity of wildlife population and ecosystems. And again, back to education and understanding things. Why do I care about ecosystem? That is where it comes from. We need to learn about these things. I don't know. Maybe I do include myself on the people who say I'm trying to eat less meat, but I don't actually do it. Maybe I should be a <laughs> bit more radical and actually take choice or, or maybe be a bit more disciplined in that sense. But I do like, I do really, you know, embrace that we actually need to have systems to not be so centered around just, you know, this is the way we've been living and that's how we're going to continue living. I think the alternatives are not that bad and it really makes sense now that we know, you know, it took 40 or 20 years to know that cigarettes were actually killing us and we've got to, I don't know how many years until we've seen that we're killing now the, the planet, right, in some sense. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I think we can all... Yes, it's really about awareness that each one of us can do something about it, but also supporting solutions that are actually going to have a much bigger impact. And, you know, some of the naysayers say, oh, this is lab-created, process-ridden, I'm never going to put it on the plate of my kids. Well, I will just say your kids might not have a table to put the plate on and the planet to live on if we don't do something about these problems. And I really absolutely believe in that. You know, there is one phenomenon that I find the most inspiring in my life. It's called murmurations. I don't know if you know what that is. Well, we'll post the video. Murmurations, when you have a flock of uh, enormous lots of birds and they start dancing together in, in the sky. And it's one of the most beautiful things in the universe. And if you just think that each one of those birds is one of us, and we all go our way, but the right way, we can make beautiful stories. We can make beautiful things in life. And I still believe that that is possible. Nice. Where would people connect with you online? Where? Um, hmm. You know, I do have a Twitter account. I don't really kind of use it much. I created a Facebook account when... Autodesk was researching Second Life and Facebook very early days just to understand what it is. I am now coding my own website. God wow, help, God, awesome. God help me. <laughs> it, 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 it advances as my programming skills advance. 
So best thing to connect with me is email. I do post on Instagram from time to time. So yeah, it's more friends and stuff, but you're welcome to join. Do you have a domain name for your website? Uh, Tatiana.Jambazova.com and .net and .whatever I bought. Okay, great, great. <laughs> it's not so, yet out. <laughs> okay, perfect. Would you have any book recommendations? So um, when it comes to books, books that have definitely uh, remained my entire life as a reference and books that I've recently read. From the books that I've recently read, I really strongly recommend The Sapiens. It has been most useful and thought-provoking. Also, the, 21st, the 21 question for the 21st century, both from Yuval Harari. Any book from Sam Harris would also bring you a lot of uh, value. Otherwise, The User Illusion from Tor Noritranders, that book is fascinating. It's about cutting consciousness down to size, and it's a very long read, but it's very worth it. On the literature side, I love The Labyrinths from Borges. I love Italo Calvino, every book from Italo Calvino. I like Barico, Alessandro Barico, and Novecento Pianista, Patrick Zuskind, all the Russian classics. Thank you. What's your favorite book of Sam Harris? I think that what was the name. His first book mostly informed me about my dilemmas of, I've never in my life tried any psychedelics, any hashish, any marijuana. I've never managed to get out of my, uh, in a mindful meditative zone. So to just see how his path started and where he is today, it's very useful. And uh, I envisage the scene of him by the lake and uh, <laughs> going through this new world that you'll never open unless you meditate a lot or take psychedelics. <laughs> What would be your message to the world? Mm, empathy with other people. Whenever you judge, just put yourself in their shoes. Imagine you are the father from Syria with a kid in their hands. You are the person from the Bahamas who just lost everything. You are the, you know, whatever you find yourself not having enough, you're not compassionate with, just put yourself in their shoes. And other than that, really, please, please, science is not debatable. It's not a question of an opinion. We don't need, it, it is a very sad time in history if we have, a 16-year-old girl, Greta, reminding us of that, that we have to stick to facts and we have to be curious to learn before we have an opinion about something. What would you do if you were rich? <laughs> well, until recently, I was always saying, I only want to be rich to be able to sponsor some of the most creative people I've seen, people who are talented, hard workers, and they've just not yet broken through. But frankly, with ever-growing, more serious problems of the planet, I think I would do just one thing. I would buy every piece of land I can so I can save it from being converted into crops. I can save it from the trees being cut. I can leave the place where gorillas or angutans or jaguars can live. And this is not just because I love the animals, but because by them disappearing, the whole ecosystems disappear. And we, we're just really... The outcome is not something that is debatable if we don't do that. And frankly, I'm very disappointed that this is not something that many leaders of companies who are very successful, who have a lot of money, are not doing that. Everything that is for sale, I would buy as a land. Nice choice. That's a, <laughs> that's a really empathetic way or a right, compassionate way of using your money. 
What do you think of slowing down in life? I do think a lot about that, but I've not <laughs> found a way. One of the most beautiful moments with my boyfriend is when we imagine an old RV and we are having everything that we own with us and we just travel around the world meeting people. Actually, even better, you travel up to a point, but then you continue walking and traveling because according to Werner Herzog, who is one misfit that I really love, you learn most about life and about people if you travel, as he say, by foot. But really questioning material possessions, questioning working 20 hours a day, seven days a week, questioning not having time to spend enough with your friends or especially with nature, etc., is a daily topic. And the dream of having a tiny house or mobile house that runs on, that is on top of an RV, that is solar driven, etc. These are daily fantasies that we hope one day will be true. I hope I can do that as well. Yep. We will meet on the road. <laughs> And one last thing. I really invite everybody to, whatever you decide to do in life, do it fully. Do it passionately. Put all your energy in it. Be serious. Be playful, but be serious about it because life is too short to be small. Your time is valuable. And you should never do anything if you don't believe in that. So just give all your best. Because there is nothing more beautiful to seeing the power of your passion and your energy when people feel it. That is something that has been a true privilege for me after talking to people or giving conferences, conference talks to just hear, you're so passionate, your energy is infectious, you inspired me. Do that. Believe in what you do and give your best. Okay, we're getting to the end of this episode. I sometimes ask this and I wanted to hear if you have any questions for me. Okay, you know how we met. We actually meet for the first time, but you are so young and at the same time so prolific. You draw, you write, you are very professional about running the podcast the same way. What do you want to be when you grow up? That's a really good question. That's tough. I, I would imagine myself doing maybe design projects that matter to me and that I can lead. So I have the decision to take whether I continue with them or not and communicating a lot. So doing things like this, like communicating through sketching, through writing, through podcasting, or maybe even video, so film or short film or things like that. I think that's what I'm more passionate about. I think there are also a lot of opportunities in connecting with people or allowing or enabling people through technology. So as well, like uh, creating things that you think are going to allow people to access things they didn't have access to before. And I don't know, I think that summarizes it. I think I also want to keep learning a lot from other people like you, for example, or, you know, some Harris or I'm other, learning from you. Or other people. So <laughs> oh, thank you. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers it, but... It definitely does. So in a way, you're also feeling that you... You want to use your talents and your passion through certain mediums to give people access to information or, as you did with me, to inspiration, because that is also very important. Is there any one big problem that you would like to see solved in the world? Hmm. Not, not completely sure what that would be. I would have to give it more thought. But if I could choose one thing, I think trying to 
help people find their passion. So something that they're that they can do that is, you know, many times I include myself, we do work projects or even full-time jobs or other things that are really utilitarian, right? So you, you know, you gotta get a paycheck and or maybe some money that is gonna allow you to maybe buy recording gear or a new laptop or just go into a trip. Other times the money fades away to the background and you're just doing that because you're improving your skills, you're working with people that you feel is worth working with, doing a project that you know you're passionate about. It's not that easy. I think it's not also not super necessary to to do that as your main job. Like you can have that as your own side projects as well. But I think I, you know, the the luckiest part of what I have is that I did a lot of sampling of like trying computers or trying arts or trying design, trying a lot of things until I, I don't know if I found my real passion or not, but I chose the ones that I seem to stick more with, that I can continue throughout the years without getting bored about it. And I found enough. You made new challenges. Yeah, new challenges and subtleties that change the project. Like, you know, now I'm here in Mill Valley with you recording in someone's house (laughs) (laughs) and you know I wouldn't have imagined that this would have happened this way but I contacted with you as I've connected with a lot of other people and uh, I ended up being here today I think that I mean maybe that's something that I really want to do is to learn how to connect with people deeply and maintain those contacts for you know many times it might seem superficial and really out of interest but you learned that at the end of the day, even this interview, right? I have to thank you. Like I spent the whole weekend around this neighborhood and it wasn't just sending an email, agreeing on a scheduled time. And this is the whole connection. Yeah, meeting for two hours. Day, yes. they, there's some deeper connection there. So I would say that what I want to do in the future is create the space for this to be able to happen more often. I know that getting... It's all about people. Yeah, it's all about it's people, all about as you people. said. So, yeah, I think that summarizes it. What would you do if you were a millionaire? If I were a millionaire? Well, I... Or a billionaire. Or a billionaire. Yeah. Well, I have to say, I, I'm i not a millionaire <laughs> or not billionaire. I'm not rich. What I have started doing already, and this is... I've been saying this to a lot of people in the last year, I think. It's that I asked many people, I asked, like, what would you do if you were 20 years old or 30? What will you tell yourself, right? So for me, I'm realizing now that one of the things that I'm going to regret if I don't do now is if I don't connect with uh, minds alike that are also creative and want to do projects and start collaborating with them, working with them. Right? Yeah, that's I beautiful. recently had um, a really lucky collaboration with, I mean, we had to work it out, but with uh, Daniel Natoli, which is a friend of mine that is now uh, dedicating his whole career to film, like short film or videos or... or hopefully long films in, in the short run. And we made a collaboration, right? Like, of course, like you have to, It's this is not like when you're young, like you just collaborate, you just spend weekends and the time doesn't matter. Like his time is valuable for me and I have also to put my time. So uh, this is something that you have to say, okay, you're a professional, you're a creative, I appreciate what you do. I pay you for this thing and together we create something that is, you know, I, I don't know, it might tick in someone or it might just be for us, but I think it, it has the ability to communicate better and to reach people in a different way mm-hmm. that just 
writing a blog post or something like that. So what we've produced so far, and I think we'll be releasing, I don't know when this episode will air, but we'll release a, a short film that we got. Um, oh, that's great. Yeah, I'll announce, like, it, it got accepted to... Mm-hmm. Um, What's the topic? Uh, <laughs> the topic, we uh, he called it Sisyphus, which is like, um, you know, like the man course, who has the to, myth, the to every, every day, like, push a rock over the mountain uh, day after day. So the topic is about trying to render an aspect of getting simple in which you have the same life over and over. Many people like you, I mean, you day after day have to repeat the same routine of leaving your house, going to work, doing the same tasks and then coming back and how maybe there is um, a way to escape that, right? So that that kind of the, the thing. But for me, what I take away when I wanted to say that, that this this makes me happy, being able to collaborate with our creative people, do a collaboration that makes sense for both of us. Uh, I think he enjoyed the project a lot. And the fact that now even a regional festival, film festival, a short festival, like selected it to be, Fantastic. you know, premiere there, it just makes it a bit more real, right? It's like the podcast, like the fact you record with a friend, record with a few people that you meet. And, you know, you go to the step of actually making it uh, a bit more efficient, put it on YouTube, put it on Apple Podcasts, put it on Spotify. So I like that thing. I think that's one of the things I really like. You said, what would I do if I was rich, right? That was the question. So why I told these stories, because what I would do if I was rich, if I were rich, is actually do maybe even architecture projects mm-hmm. or design furniture or things. That, you know, as you said before, sometimes we just do things for the sake of doing them. And I think that's rewarding. I think I will try to tie that to some other goal you know like um to help uh, in some way other people and improve people's lives in some way but that's something that you know at the end of the day it's not only money that gives you that capability but those connections like actually bonding with people that you know have the same passions and finding the time remember what i said during our dinner yesterday that my dream of retiring is to couple of friends to buy a piece of land either in south of Spain or in Italy. Everybody has their own little house, but we have a big barn in which we all make jams, cook together, read literature, play theater plays, but also build furniture, um, create beautiful things, and all sustainable and ecological. There is something about sharing with others and doing things with others. For me, it's super boring to go for a dinner with friends. I want to make things with friends. The moment you make something, it becomes something third. And that reference lives forever. It's um, a different thing. So it's beautiful that whatever question I asked, you always come back to the same thing. That for you, it's about exchanges of minds, exchanges of creativity, creating some third new value between two people. And maybe just placing some thought teasers through your artwork through your podcast through your films for people to stop and ask some questions and that's beautiful (laughs) well thank you for doing this mini interview to me i yeah i think that that makes the episode i would like to thank tatiana thank you so much for your time thank you i was always wondering why would you want to talk to me but it is a pleasure to spend a couple of days with you and i uh, hope you will have some of the people that i mentioned on your future podcast because some of them are real misfits and changers yeah these are the connections (laughs) i was talking about right like she's always thinking like these are the people i like that you can connect with 
And yeah, I think it's been hard to uh, schedule this to be in person, right? Like I think the the connection in person makes it um, it gives it a different dimension, and it it was worth it the wait. And yeah, really, thanks for your time. I okay. will add the show notes so everything we've mentioned a lot of stuff. So I'll add everything to, as I mentioned before, gettingsimple.com forward slash Tanya. That's T A N J A. And you can see there everyone we named, link to their profiles or some hints of where you can find more about them. Uh, all the books, all the links, all the, some of the companies and some of the tools that we've mentioned. And yeah. I really hope uh, you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Before you go, I'd like to remind you that you can find all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or whatever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show, it'd be great if you rate it on the Apple Podcast Store because that's one of the best ways for other people to get to know about it. I would like to hear about it as well. So if you like the podcast, if you're enjoying the show, I would really love to hear from you. So you can just send me an email at mail at nono.ma and let me what you think.